0: you to turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 67 through verse 80. Well, by signs of the crowd tonight, it's obvious that many of us love Christmas music. It's perhaps the greatest time of year to celebrate music, to enjoy. The talents of of many others. We come to these many concerts in the Advent season because we love to hear the beautiful music inspired by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at our own home. We play our favorites over and over again. We perhaps play more music in our home at this time of year than any other. And of course, the coming of Christ gives us much to sing about. In fact, there's probably no other event in the history of the world that has inspired more music than the birth and the coming of Christ. Well, tonight in our text, we are considering a song, the song of Zechariah, which bridges the Old and the New Testaments, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. In our song, we'll find that it echoes back to the era of the judges, where God raised up deliverers for Israel. We see a lot of resemblance to the song of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. But in Zechariah's song, we see an anticipation of Israel's Redeemer, the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read. Please follow in Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, "'Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel.'" Because he has come and has redeemed his people, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to redeem redeem, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him. And in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into, pa- into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of our family's favorite musicals is the story The Sound of Music. Many of you perhaps have seen it and are familiar with the storyline of how the young Fräulein Maria is called from her convent to become the governess of the children of the widower Captain Von Trapp. And while the children don't accept her right away, they begin to build a bond and warm up to her as she teaches them how to sing, how to sing beautifully in harmony with beautiful tunes, and they build a strong relationship. Well, in a telling event later on in the story, the children are asked by their father to sing for his new fiance, a woman whom the children dread as a potential stepmother, and their singing being, can be described as lackluster at best. They can hardly get the words out until Maria returns, coming up the walkway, having left the home, but now returning back. And her very presence inspires them to sing at the top of their lungs. Well, as the story goes on, you know that Maria and the captain will actually marry and be together. But then their love and affection in their, in their new marriage is interrupted by a sad and, and dangerous summons from the German Third Reich, ordering Captain von Trapp to report to a naval vessel to serve in World War II. The family plots their escape, and in one of the scenes towards the end of the story, the captain tries to sing farewell to his fellow Austrians, but just the sadness of having to depart to go join the Nazi regime. He can hardly sing until his bride Maria comes along his side to strengthen him, support him, and enable him to sing with hope and with joy. The children and the father were both inspired by the presence of Fräulein Maria. In such is the case with love, with affection, and hope. We receive our motivation to sing our songs. Music has the power to inspire. Music has the power to give unity and hope. Some would say music even has the power to create. C.S. Lewis, in his fanciful tale, The Magician's Nephew, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, illustrates this point by having Aslan, the creator, create the world of Narnia through song, through singing from his voice. But just as music has the power to unify and to create, music can also have the power to destroy, to incite rebellion. In J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The The Similarian, his creation story in the background to The Lord of the Rings, we learn that the creator of this fictional world this creator named Iluvatar has made all things and has established his angelic creatures to sing in harmony and everything is bliss and wonderful until one angel, Melkor, who is the greatest of the angels in power and knowledge, breaks harmony, breaks rank to sing his own tune. Others join him to create discord within the music. And so this perfect world is tainted by a rebel who sings his own tune. It's in response to the discord that mankind has introduced to this world, that Christ has come to retune this world, to restore the harmony that God originally intended in his good creation. Sadly, we oftentimes go our own way. Singing our own tunes, we align with the false harmonies. Or perhaps we sing with dull hearts. We are all guilty of being tone deaf before God. We resist his will in disharmony with his spirit. But the biblical response to this problem is that in Christ we may find our tune and be in tune with God. Now such effort requires upheavals. Oftentimes requires us giving up our right to ourselves. It means conforming our way to God's will, to abandon our demands, to embrace God's redemption and his will for his glory and for our ultimate good. As we come to the song of Zechariah tonight, we are recalled to the context here, the history. We find here that Zechariah had sung out of tune in unbelief in response to the angel Gabriel who appeared to him to announce that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were, well, were old and advanced in years and had no children And Zechariah responds incredulously at this great announcement of the angel. The angel punishes him, and he is unable to speak for the nine-month duration of the child to come to term. But over these months, Zechariah changes his tune. As the trial comes to an end with the birth of his son, John the Baptist, we find Zechariah bursting out with great praise like a cork released from the bottle of champagne, expressing his great relief and joy. It's like Adam bursting forth into song that at last his bride, Eve, has been made to complete him. Chastened and humbled by the rebuke of the Lord, Zechariah will go on to sing this song of God's might and God's Mercy is a song that expresses the hope of Israel for her coming Messiah. And in this song, we find a prediction of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as we look at the life of Christ, we find that there are ways that Zechariah could not have expected. There are many things in the life of Christ that Israel could not have expected or anticipated. Jesus will come singing a new tune, one that resembled the old tune and yet introduces fresh elements, expanding on the ancient themes of God's promises and yet transforming them with a new hope, a new reality that stretched beyond people's wildest dreams. The first highlight of this song we would like to point out is that Zechariah celebrates that his God is a mighty Savior. It says in the opening verse that filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophecies in great praise of his Redeemer. This great hope expressed echoes back to the great events of God's redemption in the past. Yahweh had delivered the people Israel out of Egypt, the house of bondage. Generations later, God would repeatedly raise up judges to set the people free from their captivity to the people of Canaan. As Israel slipped further and further into idolatry and bondage, God would return repeatedly to rescue his people from their sin and captivity. And yet, in their waywardness, in Israel's constant returning to false gods, God would center into captivity... To the land of Babylon and there suffer punishment for 70 years. And yet God did not forget his people. God remembered his covenant promise to the patriarchs and he graciously visits his people again and returns them home from exile. And yet as we come to the life of Christ, we find that People Israel at this time still in some sense considered themselves in exile. Although they had come back to their land, they had been released from the Babylonian empire, now they found themselves jostled about by the remnants of the Greco, now Roman empire, and did not enjoy self-rule, did not enjoy the sovereignty and the glory that they had enjoyed in times past. And so, the hope of many Israelites was anticipating that God would come again to overthrow their enemies, that they might serve him without fear, without intimidation. This hope is expressed as Zechariah raises up the horn of salvation, a repeated phrase we find throughout the Psalms and the prophets. The horn of salvation is the horn of an ox, That's a symbol and sign of strength. David writes about it in Psalm 18. He says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And so with this language, Zechariah echoes back to the Old Testament expectation of a resurgence of a Davidic kingship. The people of Israel hoped for a restoration of regional dominance, as they enjoyed during the days of Solomon's reign, freedom from all of their oppressors. And we know that God could have very easily cast out the Roman legions out of Palestine, as he had done in the past to the great empires of Egypt, the Babylonians. None of these would have been a problem for God. And yet the Lord had something much greater in mind. The song of military might becomes the song of the cross. God indeed is raising up a warrior, but the only sword he carries is his powerful word. He will prevail not with, an arm, not with armor, but within a cloak of humility." And the goal of redemption was not to destroy the pagans, but to save them with a message of hope, with power that is made perfect in weakness. You see, Israel's enemy at this time was not really Rome. No, the enemy is much more subtle, was much more powerful, much more dangerous. It is none other than Satan. The father of lies, the one who has been lying from the very beginning and stirring up all of the enemies of God's people from times past. And so just as the true enemy of Israel is far more devious than the people thought, so their deliverance would be far more glorious than anyone expected. The restoration of national dignity was not a goal high enough in God's good design. Rather, a worldwide salvation, a deliverance from sin and death. Jesus would prove his might as he commanded wind and waves, as he ordered demons to do his bidding, as he cured illnesses, raised the dead, and won over the hearts of men to follow him, And to take up their cross, Jesus proved his might, defeating the tempter in the wilderness, plundering the strong man's house, setting the captives free, storming the gates of hell, which shall not prevail against Christ's church. Jesus is the mightiest man ever, the true legend, and one worthy of our joyful songs. Like Zechariah, many of us struggle to imagine whether God can do a new thing. We pray for something big, hardly expecting that God can actually fulfill and deliver our prayer. Perhaps like Israel, we in this day and age are expecting more prosperity, more security, just wanting to serve God quietly without fear of harm. But perhaps God may have bigger plans. Are we open to that? I've heard many parents and grandparents express their dismay over the plight of their children and grandchildren's future. And of course, there are many valid concerns in our day and age, the rising threats of domestic terrorism, the decay of morality, The degradation of media, entertainment, education, increasing government intervention into all areas of life. These are all challenges to be contended with. And yet, the biblical response, I believe, is that we not yield to our fear, nor be sidetracked with where our real battle lies. For as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Such is where the battle lies for us. And so the church is called to labor in the spirit, to labor and to work and to pray and to be faithful to reach the hurting and the lost. We must pray that God would fine-tune our hearts. We must pray that he would help us to sing in harmony with the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray as the people of God, pray that we might have God's heart for the nations, God's heart for other people, that we might meet the ministry needs in our midst, that we may take up the cross of restoring the broken, of turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children to help heal and sustain marriages that we might testify to the beauty and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, not only is Zechariah's song a fight song of might, it's also we might call a melody song of mercy. He strikes up the chord of compassion as he reminds, as he's reminded of how God bore and, and persevered with their forefathers who were stiff necked, who had uncircumcised hearts. And yet, God, time and time again, responds to the people of old, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God remembers his holy covenant. It was his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that held God's hand, that stayed his wrath as his people turned away from him. And yet in his loving kindness comes to them again and again, having mercy upon a people needing hope. We see the mercy of God manifest in the life and person of Jesus Christ. The gospel writers tell us that he had compassion upon the people, seeing the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was patient with his own thick-headed disciples. Jesus forgave his worst enemies. And his mercy was so great that at one point he baffles John the Baptist, who can't understand what Jesus is about. For in John the Baptist's mind, he was expecting the Messiah to come in judgment. And we see this as John the Baptist goes to prison and sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him if whether or not he is Messiah. And Jesus responds, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the good news is preached to the poor. And so now John could understand the way of mercy. John's ministry is foretold for us here in verse 76 and following. Zechariah tells us that his own son would be the prophet of the Most High, whose task it was to go before the Lord like a herald to prepare and announce the way of the king, in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4, coming in the spirit of Elijah. He would plant in the people and show them the way and the knowledge of salvation. His task was to point people to Christ. In an act of great humility, John the Baptist declares that Jesus must become greater, and yet I must become less. His fiery preaching, calling people to repentance, to flee the coming wrath, that, may, 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 that people may find their refuge in Christ, in the forgiveness of their sins. And As verse 78 tells us, this is all according to the, ter- the tender mercy of God. His heartfelt, emotionally laden affection for his people. It's like a father's compassion upon a sickly child acting badly out of his or her misery. The Lord, indeed, is patient with the wayward. Zechariah knows this from experience. Like Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who is rebuked by Jesus in John chapter 3, these men lacked understanding. Their expectations did not fit with the will of God. And yet they were willing to listen, willing to learn, needing correction that they might change their tune and sing a new song in harmony with their God and Redeemer. The coming of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus is compared to a sunrise. In verse 78, my family and I travel to Wisconsin to see family every year or so. And oftentimes in the past, we have driven through the night to help our children sleep half the night away You get a good eight-hours head start on a long 16-plus-hour journey. And for me, driving through the night, the worst part is the dead of night. Between 2 and 4 a.m., where I'm barely conscious and need my wife to help me and stir me and even take over for me for a few hours. But the best part of that night is when just the glimmer of sunrise comes over the horizon. And it restores your spirit, reminds you, and gives you encouragement and hope as you press on in your journey. Such is the hope that comes in the coming of Christ. In verse 79, it says that the light shines on the people in darkness. Echoing back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where he writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus is the light of the world. The power of the gospel scatters the darkness. And the church is called to the likeness of Christ, to meet people in their need, to encourage the despairing, to help heal the broken, for those in financial distress, for those whose health is on the wane, for those who need restoration in estranged and broken relationships. Christ, our Comforter, leads us to ministry of mercy. And it's Christ who is with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As we're a reminder from Psalm 23, we fear no evil, for we have a shepherd who leads us who never leaves us nor forsakes us. As we face the unknown, diagnoses, threats to our health, to our finances, to our children's welfare, we're reminded again that we have a Savior who is at our side, who guides our feet along the pathways of peace, who heals the hostility and reconciles relationships they might serve for his glory. As we reflect upon Zechariah's song, we are reminded that here is a man who has walked with God for a long lifetime. And yet here is a man who is still growing. It's beautiful to see an elder saint who is still hungry to know the Lord, to know him better. And what we see in Zechariah is the great example That we must respond to God's mercy with worship. That we reject worthless and lesser things. We must constantly purify our worship that is directed to the one true God. We might serve Him. That we might obey Him regardless of what other people think of us. We might learn to trust Him. That we might learn from our mistakes believing that God truly does know what is best for us. Believe in him, regardless of circumstances, regardless of disappointments and hardships. You and I don't always get what we want. Not now, sometimes not at all. And yet, in Christ, our desires, may they conform according to what we need, according to God's perfect will for us. Zechariah reminds us that it's never too late. You are never too old to learn to sing a new tune, the song of the Savior, to trust in Christ as Lord, to yield your heart to him, to give your life to him, to let him sing in you a new song, of faith, of delight, of surrendering sin and hardship and believing upon his precious promise that those who call upon him and believe in his name, he shall not turn away but welcome you into his kingdom forever. In college, I was an engineer, but I did take one music class. It was an elective called Beethoven and the Beatles. And in this uh, very enjoyable class, I learned something about classical music. I learned the formula of sonata form. And people who know a lot more about music than I will know this better than I do. But my understanding of sonata form is that this is a format of classical Western music. And it can be simply described as the the music beginning at home, going away from home and returning home. The musician begins with a theme and begins to depart away from home, working out that theme with new themes intertwined, and yet returning back to the original theme with elegance and beauty. It's like a great story. that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a plot that thickens with conflict, before there is final resolution. Sonata form is the form of the Bible. In scriptures, we find mankind beginning at home, at peace and in harmony with God, singing his tune. And yet, when we went astray like the prodigal, drifting and cast out of the garden of bliss with turbulence and discord hopelessness and despair, and yet God in his mercy does not leave us to our helplessness. He sends the Savior to redeem us, to restore us, to help us find our way home. Christ was sent on a rescue mission. He who left home, who came to fight our battle, and in victory returns and takes us with him. Christmas is about this great battle. A people going home again with shouts of praise and joy, singing the song of our Savior. Let's enter into Advent with hearts of praise and joy, giving glory to Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy you have shown us, for the might you have demonstrated. By the powerful victory on the cross, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for adopting us, for including us in your plan of redemption. Be glorified as we depart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.